Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. My guest today is Jason Flume, an influential music executive, podcaster, and philanthropist. He's the former chairman of Atlantic Records, Virgin Records, and Capital Music Group. The list of artists whose careers he's helped foster include Tori Amos, Twisted Sister, Man of War, Sugar Ray, Kid Rock, and Katy Perry, to name a few. He's the founder and CEO of Lava Records, a label partnered with Universal that counts Lord, Greta Van Fleet and Jesse J amongst its rooster of artists. But what caught my attention about Jason Flume was his passionate advocacy for those who have been wrongly convicted. As well as being a board member of the Innocence Project, Flume is also the host of a successful podcast called Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flume. This has been listened to by more than 30 million people worldwide. This man is really making a difference. It's lovely to meet you, Jason. I heard a lot about you last night. I was at the event that you unfortunately couldn't make because there were more important and pressing things for you to do back in the States um, around the work you do on death penalties. But you were spoken very highly of by Merck and the other guests that were were on the panel that I moderated for the Responsible Business Initiative for Justice yesterday. You were well missed, is what I'm saying. Well, I missed you guys. I was there in spirit, but I had a, um, you know, we, we, we have these choices. Uh, and unfortunately, it was just a strange uh, coincidence that the episode of the Dr. Phil show was taping at exactly the time that the event was happening in London. And it's a death penalty case that I've been deeply connected to for some time now of an innocent guy named Richard Glossop, who um, I feel like we have a very good chance to get him out. And, uh, and it's interesting because it's an Oklahoma case and Dr. Phil is sort of a deity in Oklahoma. You know, he's uh, one of, if not the most famous person ever born in that state, you know, so and he's also a real activist when it comes to this stuff. It's not like he does the TV show and then forgets about it. He will go 
deep when he really believes in uh, someone like Richard, who's actually innocent of the crime of which he was convicted. And there's so many. Let's get to that in a minute. What what I'd like to do here, Jason, is, you know, there's lots of stuff written about you. If somebody wants to interview you or speak to you, they can look at all kinds of pages and bits of information. But look, uh, and not all of it's true, even if you want it to be sometimes. You know, they say you're 10 foot built like a brick bomb and, you know, you're a magnet to everything. So let me start, Jason, by asking you how you would describe yourself. I know you've had an amazing career, so don't exclude that. And don't be shy in championing the man you become from the boy you were. So I want to go back to how would you describe yourself to my listeners? Well, that's a very kind introduction, first of all, and um, and I appreciate it very much. You know, I'm an overgrown kid, right? I mean, I'm a guy who, as a, as a kid, like so many of us, one of my great joys was in discovering music before my friends did. And then, you know, in those days, we would get together around a turntable, right? And we would play a record. And, you know, there was that incredible sort of social currency that came with being the first kid on the block, so to speak, who had the new, you know, hot jam or whatever you want to call it, the, the new great vinyl that then became you know, the soundtrack to our lives. And then I, you know, I failed at being a rock star, which was what I thought I was going, what my destiny was. Well, actually, it's funny because I I picked up a guitar because I didn't make the sports teams, which I very much wanted to do in high school. I have have fast hands and slow feet. So I can, you know, I could beat almost anyone at ping pong. You know, I was a pretty good bowler. But when it came to team sports, you know, you must be quick, right? You know, you must have quick feet. And so, I picked up a guitar and I, I quite fell in love with that. And then, you know, but my dad had told me, uh, Raphael, that he told my brother and I, my dad was my hero and my mentor. And he said, by way of career advice, he said, do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it. But just remember that the only definition of success that really matters is that you make the world a better place. And so around the time I was 18, the first Van Halen record came out and I said, okay, forget playing the guitar. This is ridiculous. (laughs) And so, and at the same time, I got an intern position at Atlantic Records and an assistant trainee position, they called it, and uh, putting up posters in record stores. And I fell in love with the music business. And I thought, you know, maybe I can become the best at helping other people become rock stars because I'm never going to be the best guitar player. And then and then it was, you know, a, a decade, a little more than a decade later that I found my calling in life, which which spoke to the, the the advice that my dad had given me, right, which was I found the way that I could make the world a better place, right? I found my, you know, if you want to call it my superpower was that I could help extricate people from the criminal injustice system that is such a profound problem in the United States. Well, I mean, you skip past the the... the one of your biggest successes, which is music. And music is also a vehicle. Merck made a very good comment last night. You know, music is made by black people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And yet they are the most oppressed, yet we love their music. And it's what's written in those songs. Do you think that your your love, not just of music, but of, of what is written in some songs drove who you later become or what, what drove your passion ignited by your dad's guidance that be the best person you can. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I loved the fact that music was, when I was growing up, it was one of the main tools of social activism, right? Um, it was, you know, Bob Dylan. And it was, you know, in those days, you'd have these, you know, people listening may not be old enough to remember Kent State, right? But Kent State in the early 70s was a college, I think, in the, in the Midwest in America, where there were anti-Vietnam War protests and National Guard troops came and fired on the on the teenagers, or the, the college students, and four of them were killed. And there was an iconic photo of the girl screaming over her her friend's dead body and you know a week later crosby stills in nashville east ohio right yeah it was in ohio of course the song was ohio and you know you had bob dylan uh and you had you know the beatles and you had these other and of course you know i grew up going to see sly and the family stone and stevie wonder at madison square garden and you know you had this incredible well first of all genius music coming from you know literal musical geniuses that were also, you know, using it, using their platforms to make statements and to inspire people to get involved in in changing things that they saw were wrong. Pink Floyd, right? I mean, so many um, that, you know, and now that feels feels like it's missing to an extent, you know, but but yes, to answer your question. Of course, I saw that the power of that. I listened to, you know, there are two things that, that come that, to mind when I was young. One was uh, Bob Dylan's song, The Hurricane, right? About Hurricane, Ruben Hurricane Carter. And, uh, and I read Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. And that book was the most profound reading experience I ever had. So, yes, I saw the power of art to change to change the narrative, to, to change culture and to, you know, and to, and to inspire social change. And so, so a hundred percent. Yeah. The connection is, is you're the first interviewer that's ever asked me that question, but I, you're a hundred percent right. Do you think, I mean, you mentioned that, that they're not doing it today as they did in the past, you know, they're not trailblazing using music. I mean, they do, but they don't in the same way, I suppose, because it's more people jumping on. I hesitate to say the bandwagon, but we know what that means. You you own your own record production company, label, etc. You know, do you desire the people that you work with have some purpose? I mean, or is it just that's a separate entity to what you do, helping people who have been wrongly convicted as well as being involved in social justice and other issues? Is, is there an alignment with what you do in the industry with what you do outside of the industry, although I know they overlap? No, that's a great question. But the answer is no. Um, you know, the artists create what, you know, what they create. I mean, they, you know, they get inspired by whatever inspires them. And, you know, I, I make them aware. I try not to be overbearing. I don't try to, you know, proselytize too much. But then, you know, it either resonates or doesn't. And and again, that's to each his own. I mean, a lot of people do a lot of good things. And a lot of the artists are involved in their own charitable endeavors. I think Greta Van Fleet is one of my artists and they have a very, you know, their message is certainly promoting sort of peace and, and a different kind of almost an old school sort of harmony amongst people, right? The whole anthem for a peaceful army and all that stuff. So it's not specifically a social justice message by any means, but it's uh, it's related. You know, when it comes to the record side, the music side of things, I try to find great artists and help them achieve their greatest potential. And if along the way some, you know, protest song emerges, I'm thrilled, but I can't, um, you know, I can't dictate that. When I was, again, looking at your profile outside of the music industry, 
you are associated with a number of different organizations doing good in the world or trying to do good in the world. And I was thinking as I was reading it, where does he find the time to sleep? You know, you seem to be listed as being involved in so many important projects, social justice projects. Where do you find the time to do those things in addition to paying your bills, if you like, and taking your dog for a walk? <laughs> um, yes, the dog is always the top uh, priority. Um, and I do love my dog. Uh, his, his name is Freddie Mercury, and he is a pit bull, and he's just the most wonderful creature. And of course, I have another, uh, I have an English bulldog named Lulu, who I wrote the book with my daughter about called Lulu is a Rhinoceros. Which again, I mean, I try to live, and maybe this is a strange or, or sort of a, a roundabout way of answering the question, right? But I try to do projects that do promote the things that I believe in, right? So we have the Lulu is a rhinoceros, which obviously is a metaphor for a number of things, but trans would be the obvious metaphor there, right? And we tried to create a little hero for kids who feel left out, put down, or bullied because of the way they look, the way they feel, or the way they are. And it's been very gratifying because I wrote it with my daughter and it touches a lot of those bases and it's been embraced by the autism community as well. And so it's really had a nice effect on quite a a large number of children. So that's nice. And, you know, then I have these other projects, right? The wrongful conviction podcast and, you know, Winston Churchill, the great Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Right. And so I'm very fortunate to be able to do some of those things all at once. And maybe that helps me, you know, fit it into the hours of the day. You know, I have a project, which we don't have time to talk about all this stuff, but I have a project called the church of rock and roll that I think will expand on those on those same principles, right? It's it's basically our principle is be kind to yourself, to other people, to animals and the earth. And so inside the lava media umbrella, we try to do projects that embody the principle of doing good by doing good. And I'm very fortunate that music has provided me the life, uh, the, the living, and then the other stuff has provided me the life. And so, you know, those are those are words to live by, I think. I first came across your name when I was invited to this event, which is really surprising given the work that you do around wrongful convictions, having been, okay, here in the UK, a wrongly convicted prisoner. But it was when, you know, I was asked to moderate this event that took place last night, which is Businesses Against the Death Penalty. Jason Flum was one of the names on the list. And so I did my research and had a look and I thought, wow. And then I started listening to your Wrongful Conviction podcast. And I've been, and it takes a lot, Jason, believe me, it takes a lot for me to be impressed by people who take on such an important issue that is close to my heart, because it's often sensationalized. It's often represented in a, a sort of slightly unbalanced way. And I can't stop listening to your podcast. I think I finished listening to, is it James King case this morning? which was the last one I listened to, but I've listened to quite a few of them. And what's impressed me the most is the detail that you go into on this podcast about the individual cases. And we can get in, I don't want to get into the details of individual cases, but where did the idea of doing a wrongful conviction podcast in the way that you're doing it, Jason, come about? Well, thank you. First of all, it means a lot to me that you're a listener and that you have, you know, a personal connection to this issue uh, makes it that much more profound, uh, your words that much more uh, powerful and profound. Um, and so the inspiration for the podcast came from my, I'm going to call it what it is, an obsession with helping people who have 
been to hell and back, right? And by that, I mean the people who were wrongfully convicted and have been sentenced to death or life without parole, who've served 10, 20, 40 or more years in prison in America for crimes they had nothing to do with. And I've gotten to know hundreds, literally hundreds of them over the years of doing this work, because I've been doing it since the early 90s. And I find that to a person, they are the most extraordinary individuals. And you and I both live amazing lives, right? We get to interact with some of the most fascinating and brilliant and accomplished people there are. But I don't know any group of people that embodies the characteristics of of optimism, of courage, and of grace that is equal to the, the, the group of people, what we call exonerees, right? And each one of them has a different way of expressing it, but every one of them has this sort of joy de vivre, right? This this optimism, this every day is going to be, you know, they get up and they're ready to, you know, t- take on the world with no, you know, one of them, and I, I, I quoted him yesterday on Dr. Phil, I love quoting this guy, John Huffington. So John Huffington was a guy who was sentenced, had a double death sentence in uh, in Maryland. I don't know why you need a double death sentence, but okay, let's leave that alone in case you come back to life. I don't know. But anyway, so John was wrongfully convicted, ended up serving 32 years, many of them on death row. And I spoke at an event, uh, the Southern Center for Human Rights. Um, I was an honoree at their event in Washington, D.C. a few years ago. And John was in the audience and I shouted him out from the stage and he's a big, tall six foot four guy with a square jaw. He always wears a suit and tie. And afterwards, one of the people in the audience came up to us and says to him, I, I don't understand something. He's talking to him directly in his face. He says, you don't seem angry. Like what's going on here? I'd be so angry. I'd be so bitter. You know, I'd be looking for the guy who did this to me. Like what's going on here? You know? And John looks at him and says, man, that's why the rear view mirror is small, but the windshield's big. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> Like, just knock me over with a feather. But so that story is really a, a, a little soundbite that really, I think, exemplifies the spirit that I, I get and, and the gratitude that I get in my attitude from being around these extraordinary people. So my thought was, Raphael, if I can tell or and amplify these stories by interviewing the people one-on-one and touch people's hearts then we can help to prevent these wrongful convictions from happening with such alarming regularity in the future, just by educating the audience, every one of whom someday may serve on a jury in a criminal trial. And so, you know, it's been incredible because we've had about 30 million downloads now. The the podcast has had a impact on successful outcomes in a number of cases, And it's inspired legislation in the states of Washington, Illinois, and Indiana thus far. But the most important ones are the ones we're never going to know about, right? The the cases where somebody was in a jury room and said, hold on a minute. I listened to that James King episode. And, you know, because Raphael Rowe, I heard about it on the podcast and or whatever they hear it. And. I am not voting to convict this guy because there's too much doubt. Like there's too many lies and nonsense going on here. There's, there's, there's all these hallmarks that you see in case after case of these wrongful convictions. And when people know, they know. And I would say one more thing, you know, I know I'm on a rant here, but the overwhelming number of people, and this has been proven with research, right? By my friend, Josh Dubin. So he's done the studies. People, when they go into the jury box, if they see someone in the defendant's chair, they automatically assume they're guilty because they must be there for a reason. 
And so the whole innocent until proven guilty thing is really, it's, it's a great idea, but it's a myth. And we need to put that back in its rightful place. Just going back to what you said about this anger thing, it, it, even last night, I, I, as I opened the event, talked a little bit about myself, one of the first questions a couple asked me if I, as I came off stage was that very question, you, you know, how did you overcome the anger? And I said to them, I was angry and bitter for 12 long years, confined in a box in a tomb. I was so angry from the age of 20 to 32. Why am I going to allow the system now I'm a free man to keep that anger inside me? I had to release it because I'd never be able to love again. I'd never be able to embrace my sisters, my family, or or build a relationship with my children or or anything if I held on to that anger. That anger got me through those 12 years. And now it's time for me to channel it in another direction. So it resonates with me what you say when, when you spoke to this guy. One of the things about your podcast that, that, that strikes me is its honesty. You know, I think when people, and I don't know if this is just the American way, which I admire more than anything, because over here in the UK, we can be a little bit shy at saying something's wrong. We go around about it. We don't point blank shoot the, the evidence, you know, like I hear you and your guest on your podcast. And that's what I think has impressed me the most. It's clear. It's it, it's not convoluted. It's not confusing. It's either right or it's wrong. Someone told the truth or they told a lie and you say it as it is. Does that get you into trouble? Do you even care that people will, you know, question if they do what you do on your podcast? Well, the answer is it's a calling, right? I mean, I found way back again in the early 90s and 93 when I got involved in the first case I ever got involved in. And, you know, what was that case, Jason? That was the case of a guy named Stephen Lennon. I had read this story in the newspaper just randomly. I happened to pick up the New York Post one day because the New York Times was sold out. So it's serendipity, right? Um, Or synchronicity or whatever you want to call it. And there was a story, I can pull it up and show it to you. It's on my phone about a kid named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State. And I know for a lot of your listeners, they're going, oh, no, no, he just misspoke. That can't be accurate. But yes, he was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in a maximum security prison in New York State, a prison where he met Son of Sam the first day he was there. So the reason it was in the newspaper was because his mother had been trying to get clemency for her son. Now, as it happened, he was 32. I was 32. He had been in for eight years. I had been sober for about eight years. And I had had my own, you know, addiction issues as a kid. And that was my drug of choice. So, you know, I really had this sort of, I'm not a religious person, but I had this there before the grace of God go I moment, right? And um, and I think that's why it's so important that you're doing what you're doing, because if it could happen to you, it could happen to anyone. And I'm talking about you, Raphael Rowe. So the fact is, I felt like I had to do something. He had got, his mother had gotten letters from, the the warden, the sentencing judge, even uh, Geraldine Ferraro, who was the first woman ever to be nominated to be vice president for a major major political party in the United States, had written a letter on behalf of Stephen 
because Geraldine Farrar's own son had had issues with cocaine. He'd been arrested. So, but of course he was sentenced to house arrest because, you know, his mother was powerful. But anyway, that being said, I thought I, I, I have to do something. My whole, oh, everything I thought I knew about fairness and equity was out the window. I knew nothing about these drug laws or mandatory sentencing laws. Nobody does until it affects them pretty much. And so I ended up contacting the only criminal defense attorney I knew, a guy named Bob Colina. He represented two artists that I had signed. Here's where the worlds collide again, right, Raphael? So I'd signed Stone Temple Pilots and Skid Row, and both of them were getting arrested regularly. (laughs) So I had him on speed (laughs) dial. So the singers in particular. And so I asked Bob if there was anything he could do. He said, "It's there's nothing you can do. It's called the Rockefeller drug laws. And he's one of thousands of people serving these crazy sentences. I said, look, would you do me a favor? Talk to the mother on the phone. I'd spoken with her by now. I'd offered to send some money. Um, I didn't have a lot of money back then, but I offered to send what I could. And uh, she said they were out of appeals. And, you know, this was his last hope. And it was really grim. So anyway, long story short, he ended up taking the case pro bono as a favor to me. And six months later, we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York, uh, up by the Canadian border. And I sat there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand with her husband Stan on the other side. They brought Stephen in in shackles, right? As if he was, you know, a serial killer. You know, his legs were chained together. You know the drill. Hands chained to his waist. And um, the arguments went back and forth. I knew nothing about what was going on. I had a mullet back then. I was wearing purple Doc Martens. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> don't judge. But anyway, so... I'm surprised the guards didn't come and say, where are you going? You're going this way, man. That's right. I, I'm surprised too. I mean, the pictures from back then are scary. But anyway, but the arguments went back and forth. And then before you know it, the judge, who was an old guy with white hair, I thought we have no hope with this guy. And he banged the gavel down and sent Stephen home. And I thought that was the, I mean, that was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. You know, that was my moment, right? That was the thunderbolt. And so I I then read an article in Rolling Stone magazine uh, about an organization that had started recently. Well, it was featured in the article. It was about the, this article was about the Grateful Dead shows where the DEA was sending undercover agents into the dead shows and setting up these kids to sell them a few hits of acid and then sentencing them to, they were being sentenced to 10 years or more. And it referenced this organization called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, which is FAMM.org, if people want to look it up. I joined their board. I'm still on their board. They do incredible work in this area. Soon after that, I saw something on TV about an Innocence Project case, which was one of their early cases where a guy had been sentenced to death. And, you know, not too long before his execution date, the Innocence Project had come along and found the DNA with a microscope and the the whole thing, like, you know, CSI in reverse, I call it, right? And they were able to free this guy. And so I basically marched down to the Innocence Project office and volunteered my services and became the first board member. So they call me the founding board member, not the founder. I want to be clear on that. The founders are Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld. So I've been on this journey ever since, and it's been an amazing journey. It is an incredible journey. And, and I'm going back to your podcast because I, I admire it. And I'm not just saying that. It's because of the way that you present it. And I would encourage listeners to tune in as soon as possible, people that are interested in this space. And even if you're not, go and listen to it because it is it's so different to a lot of the the podcasts and other platforms that try to tackle these issues because you're dealing with the final detail. Now, one of the things that I was thinking, I was going for a walk around the block this morning, as I tried to do every morning to clear the mind from the night before. When I was in prison, it was a shower. I'd get up, I'd go and I'd have a shower and I'd try and wash away last night's 
pain and suffering and and that would set me up as every drop hit my body it would be that goes that goes that thought goes and it kind of prepared me for the next hour or the next day now it's walking around the block I've just made that transition where I have the freedom to do that in prison I didn't but when I was walking around and listening to the King story this morning a lot and this is not a criticism it's it's a question when I listen to it all of the conversation although you do present the the prosecution's case and then unpick it as much as you possibly can within the hour of the podcast. And I know that's an hour of, in some of these guys' cases, 24 years and 30 years of fighting their convictions. But do you feel comfortable? I do, but I want to know if you do feel comfortable presenting the stories the way that you present them. Is it the only way to present these stories on your podcast? That's a fair question, and to me it is. Um, I think that there are some uh, shows, TV shows uh, and others, that go too far to try to present both sides of the story, even when they know that the story really only has one side, right? And so, you know, look, I can't dictate to them how they do what they do, but I can control how I do what I do. You know, there's the famous English jurist named Blackstone, right, who had Blackstone's theorem where he said that it's better that 10 guilty men should go free than that one innocent should suffer. And I'm paraphrasing, but I think those are the exact words. And so have I ever been fooled uh, by someone uh, into thinking they were innocent? Maybe only once or twice um, in my experience. And and those are not people who I've featured on the podcast. So we do our research. I speak with trusted sources. And to the, to my knowledge in the, Jesus, we're you know, closing in on 200 episodes now or whatever it is, it may even be, yeah, it's around that number, I guess. And every one of the people that I've, that we've covered on the, on the case, I believe in my heart is innocent. And every one of those stories needs to be told. And and for many of the people, and you having been through, you know, what you've been through can probably relate to this on a profound level. You know, we had a, a recent one, a case named Anthony Sims, you know, who's been in for uh, 23, 24 years. I, I listened to that episode. Right. It's really a disturbing episode because... They all know, are. Let's be clear. They all are. I mean, it's incredible that you are shining a spotlight uh, and i love what you do at the end of the podcast where you sort of say look hi jason i'm gonna shush and let you guys say your final word and it can be so emotional but carry on anthony yeah 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 so with anthony you know i got a beautiful note from his attorney not too long after the podcast aired you know where he said that this meant so much to anthony uh, because no one's ever allowed him you know, to tell his story in the way that it really is, you know, and that this, you know, this is one of the, I mean, the, there's so much positive affirmation that comes from this work. I wish we didn't have to do it, right? I think all of these organizations have one wish that we could be put out of business. Unfortunately, we never will be, but because there's always going to be mistakes uh, made, but the, you know, even, and I always say this, you know, I say this to people who are in favor of the death penalty. And I'll get back to your question. I always ask, forgetting the fact that there is no benefit 
to anybody of the death penalty, right? It's been proven not to have any deterrent effect whatsoever. In fact, places that don't have it have lower crime rates than places that do across the board. And it's expensive. It's much more expensive than keeping someone in prison for life. It's also, you know, has a terrible effect on the people and many of the people who actually are charged with operating the machinery of death, right? They wind up with tremendous psychological or other problems, um, you know, and it just goes on. I mean, the list of horrors goes on and on. But many people still believe in the death penalty. In America, it's the, the support for it is at an all-time low. It's less than 50%. But for people who do believe in it, I say to them, what percentage of innocent people is it okay to execute? Because even if we removed all of the, the things that caused the wrongful conviction numbers to be so high, if we removed, if we were able to have public defenders that were properly paid, that weren't working 100 or 200 or 400 cases a year, right, who weren't drunk, right, or asleep, if we had jurors that were all attentive and were educated to know about how the system works and doesn't, if we didn't have, you know, inherent biases, racial or otherwise, or even just as basic as what we talked about before, Raphael, where people say, well, the guy's in the defendant's box, you know, must be a reason. Even if we didn't have prosecutors who were trying to move up the ladder by by chalking up wins as opposed to, you know, as, as opposed to getting justice, right? Even if we had cops that were not incentivized to lie or not, or weren't, you know, disinterested or, or otherwise motivated to do the things that they do. Even if we had forensic scientists that were qualified, and if we had actual science in the courtroom, as opposed, because, you know, in some ways, justice is the opposite of science, but we'll get to that later. But even if we removed, and there, I could go on and on, even if we removed, even if we had judges that weren't almost all former prosecutors, right? That's a crazy thing in America. Over 80% of judges are former prosecutors. What does that mean? Think about it, right? So the odds are stacked against you, no matter whether you're innocent or not. And, but even if we removed all of those things, the fact that many people in the system want to move up and run for office and they think that by getting all these wins it's going to improve their chances or they're going to get a better job even if we removed all those obstacles to justice there's still going to be human error so the question comes back to the same thing if you're in favor of the death penalty what percentage of innocent people is it okay to execute is it one percent is it ten percent it's never going to be less than 1%. Now it's over it's higher than 10% in America by most best estimates. So, and what if it was you? What if it was you or someone you loved? Would you feel still feel the same way? So that's where I keep coming back to that, you know. And I'm glad you mentioned the 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 closing of the show because it means a lot to me that you said that because the end of our show on the Wrongful Conviction podcast, I I always close it the same way by asking people, you know, to thanking them again for being whether it's Anthony Sims or Amanda Knox or James King or whoever it might be, I thank them for being on the show. And then I say, I'm going to turn my microphone off and kick back in my chair, leave your mic on for as long as you want, which is usually just a couple of minutes for what we call closing arguments. And the most beautiful words come from the lips of these people who, like yourself, have endured the worst that society can dish out and come back you know, resilient and strong and, like I said, uh, optimistic. And, you know, it's it, it's my favorite part of the show. And 
and I think it's great because people that that you know that listen to the whole episode deserve that sort of cookie at the end, right? It's like, and, and it's, it's a brilliant a, cookie. I mean, it, it it is. It's kind of uh, in some episodes you kind of wait for the end because the arguments have been made, but what they say at the end is so heartfelt, and, and it's kind of well, is your moment. But I like what you said about the response you got from Anthony because it resonates with men like me who I was locked up in 1988. And in those days, well, I can say this at any point, you know, people like yourself didn't exist. You know, people I say with influence whose voices are a lot louder than my mother's or my sister's were or my lawyer's were because you have that position. And you obviously recognize that, Jason, because you use it for, for, for such good. You know, you're representing people who are the downtrodden and forgotten and, and have been caught up in a system that is unfair and disproportionately racist in, in America in particular, but here in the, in the UK. Or don't you recognize that? Because I'm hoping you're going to say to me, I don't. I'm just doing what I believe in. My heart hurts when I, I hear of their suffering or I see that that's wrong and I just want to do good. Or do you think, and I hope you say this as well. No, I am a man who has been very successful in my own career and I have connections. I have people who also have been successful in their career and people will listen to them, whether it's the ordinary man and woman on the street, an attorney who has influence and can make decisions. Because I, I often hear you refer to, I think it's the Californian um, Senate or, or, or DA or whatever they're called, who you say is a good man. And that it's little things like that that I find really interesting because you're not dissing the whole system and saying they're all bad. You're saying there are some good guys and they can make the right decision. Now, it might be you just trying putting pressure on them, saying we're watching you make the right decision. I'm I'm telling people you're a good person, so show us you're a good person. But but why do you do it, Jason? And and is it? I know your motive is to try and help people like myself who have been in that situation, and those people didn't exist in the numbers I think they do today because of what's happened over the recent years people are paying more attention why do you do it oh i don't feel like i have a choice it's sort of my like i said it's my calling and you know i do love interviewing people um i love a microphone it's one of the only things um that and like i said maybe ping pong are the only two things i sort of have a natural ability for i, I beat I, you at ping pong because i was in prison and so one of our recreational things was we call it table tennis and I'm pretty good. So there's got to be a time when you and I get in front of a table tennis or a ping pong table when we have a game because I'm confident that I'm good. Okay, good, because I think I'm going to be over your way in November. So hopefully we'll get a chance to, to get after game it. Um, so yes, I do love, I love people. I love interviewing people. And I, um, I get so much gratitude in my attitude from being around and with these extraordinary people. And I also feel a duty to tell these stories uh, in the way they should be told and to create a lasting record. You know, I was inspired by what I think Sp Steven Spielberg did, right? Where he went around to the Holocaust survivors and he created permanent, these testimonials was well, permanent that, that, that will live forever, right? That will, you know, while they were still on this planet, while they could still speak their truths. And I thought if we could do a similar type of thing, for this group of people, right? People like yourself who have been through this and, and come through it, you know, then we can inspire young people to become uh, uh, activists or attorneys or social workers or, you know, whatever it may be. We can, um, again, help to influence the outcome of, of future cases. Um, we can inspire 
change and and we have with with politicians or others and you know it's exceeded any expectations that I may have had and I will keep doing it because I'll keep doing it as long as I have any brain cells left um and as long as I have the ability to use my voice I shall we're trying to figure out now Raphael ways to to, to you know to make it even more effective in terms of trying to you know highlight cases that will maybe be able to reach a specific audience that we want to reach. In other words, if I have a case in a certain state and I know someone who may know a top leader in that state, a governor or somebody else, and I can get them to you know, sort of forward that episode to a person that might listen to it, who's in a position to make a decision that could impact the case. So we're trying to uh, to really lever it in more and more effective ways. And it's, it's interesting. It's not dissimilar from the music industry in a certain way. You know, for me, the music industry has always been, we're jumping back and forth here, but I love music um, and I love the artists. I don't love recording studios. I don't know what all those buttons do. Honestly, I'm not even sure some of them do anything. <laughs> you know, there's these hundreds of buttons. It's like you're flying well, a plane. Hearing it from you puts me at peace because I've always seen that. And I only ever see them move one or two up and there's all these buttons. So it's good to hear you <laughs> right. don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, but the um, bass and treble, I understand. So anyway, the uh, I play the stereo. But the jigsaw puzzle of the music industry has always been really fun for me to try to to, to find a great artist, um, whether it's a, you know, a Katy Perry or the cores or any of the artists I've worked with over the years or Lord or Matchbox 20, whatever, and then figure out how to get it in the hands of the people who can actually, you know, the, the gatekeepers, right. And try to befriend those people, take them to play golf if that's what they love or take them for a nice meal or whatever it might be. And then try to, you know, have them, you know, listen in a way that's maybe more open-minded than just sending them a file or a CD in the mail or whatever we typically do. And then open, like I said, open, you know, find those keys to unlock the potential of this wonderful music that these artists create. So there's, there is some sort of a parallel there, right? It's still navigating through a system, which is over, you know, overloaded and in which, an opportunity as uh, you know, the problem is the opportunity, right? There's, there's so much music that comes out, right. And, and, you know, and so it's, it's always, it's a challenge to try to get any particular piece of music uh, brought to the attention of, of consumers. And there's so many cases. And, and so trying to figure out a way to get justice, especially after a conviction. Well, as you know, firsthand. But what's, um, what's incredible, Jason, when I listen to your podcast and some of the cases, and it's, it's similar here in the UK, and my case is a classic, you know, three black men locked up for a crime committed by two white men, took 12 years for that conviction, which was clearly obviously wrong to, to be overturned. But why do you think there is a problem? Because when I listen to some of the cases on your podcast, it's clear people have lied, the evidence doesn't exist, or where new evidence has been covered. And the lawyers often rant about the fact they've gone through one appeal process, another appeal process. And on the face of it, put this evidence in front of any true justice seeker, i.e. the, the prosecution or, or a judge, if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, they would make the right decision, but they, they don't make the right decision, even in the face 
of overwhelming information and evidence, especially new evidence that's come to light since the conviction, like DNA evidence. I mean, the one about the carpet and the young girl. As horrendous as that case was, it sounded pretty clear that that the evidence didn't stack up, never did, yet this guy's been in prison for 24 years. So, so what do you think the, the problem is with those who make these decisions, i.e. the judges and the DA, the prosecutors, who once years down the line are presented with this new evidence, don't do the logical, common, right thing and overturn the conviction. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something I struggle with, you know, because it's really hard to understand. And But it's a fact of life every day in courtrooms all across the country and the world, um, as you can give testament to, um, and you do so eloquently, that the fact is that they seem to value finality over justice, right? And let us not forget that in almost every case where someone is wrongfully convicted of a crime that has actually happened, right? We know that some people were convicted of crimes that never even happened. And I can give examples of that. But in every case in which someone's convicted of a crime that they didn't do, but a crime that's a very real crime, the actual perpetrator remains free. And that person or persons are free to go and commit other unspeakable acts. And that happens uh, very, very often in so many of our cases where the, uh, you know, in many, many of the of the cases, the Innocence Project, for instance, has, in which we've uncovered the DNA that led to the exoneration of the innocent person. It's also created a hit in the, they call it POTUS, the data, uh, uh, CODIS, the database in, in the United States, the DNA database is called CODIS. And so the, actual perpetrator has been identified. And in way too many of those cases, that person has gone on, like I said, to commit other murders or other violent crimes. And those were preventable if the system would not have just valued expediency over justice, right? It's like once they, you know, the case that I was uh, recorded an episode on Dr. Phil's show yesterday, there's a case of a guy named Richard Glossop, you know, who it's as disturbing as any, right? I mean, it was totally clear from day one that he could not have done this crime. There were two perpetrators. One of them is in prison, but the other one is free. And no one knows what became of her. And, you know, we don't know what other terrible things she may have done, but she beat and stabbed a guy to death along with her, you know, partner, Justin Sneed, who was her boyfriend and you know, and they were robbing this guy together. So, yeah. So as a public safety issue, it's confusing because I think about it this way too, Raphael, like especially in smaller towns and little communities, right? One would think that the officials in charge, whether it's the DA or the prosecutor or the judge or whoever it might be, would be very motivated, even just for selfish reasons, to get the actual perpetrator off the street so that their own family is that thereby safer, right? And ev- and their neighbors and their friends and their loved ones are safer. But that seems to be, that that's out the window as well. All of it's out the window in the interest of just getting somebody and clearing the case. And of course, and Amanda Knox is the greatest example of this, we also know, and she's like a little sister to me, but she literally calls me big brother and I call her little sister. But anyway, trial by media, you know, the, the higher profile the case, the more the media attention grows and the less chance there is for actual justice. And so these are just some of the problems. Oh, I wanted to return to one thing, if I could, Raphael, which is when I said before that 
justice is the opposite of science, at least in America, this is what that means. Science progresses and evolves, right? New studies are done, new discoveries are made, and new textbooks are written, right? And new practices are instituted because of advancements. But in the courts, it works by precedent. So you could have a junk science that's been completely debunked, whether it's arson or blood spatter or shaken baby syndrome or whichever one you want. And, you know, you could go in and say, well, the new science shows, but the judge will look and say, but another court has allowed this evidence before. So we're going to allow it as well. And it's like, so in that sense, it really is like the opposite of science. Science looks forward and justice looks backward. And as a result, practices that we know lead to wrong outcomes and, and disastrous results are allowed to be, you know, bite mark evidence, right? We have a whole season, we have a whole um, season of our show, which we called Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, which each, each episode examines a different area of junk science. And it's really shocking. Even fingerprints are almost entirely subjective. It's crazy to think that, but it's true. And, and it's the question around evidence, you know, scientific evidence, the disputes between different scientists, the arguments between very um, esteemed barristers or lawyers who stand up there and it's a game to them on, on the one hand, who can get the, the biggest punch in. And, 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 and I think the American court system, if it's, and I've never been into the American court system, only once when I came to to cover the the Trayvon Martin case. Um, and I was looking at the gun laws in, in America and met Trayvon Martin's family and Ben Crum, and I did stuff around that um, for a documentary. But, but what, what, what I find incredible, as you tell me this, is we talk about the, you know, the testing of evidence and the judge's decisions to dismiss new evidence or new information, preferring the old evidence, as you say, science, forget it, old justice. But it's the individuals that I can't get my head around. It's the individuals who, who know that what they're doing is wrong. I mean, it's one thing a witness being coerced or a witness lying and they have a, an ulterior motive. Maybe they were themselves the perpetrator and so it's in their interest to point the finger at someone else. But I'm talking about the upholders of justice, the people that went to law school or, or the people who become the scientists who do it for, for innocent reasons as a young student, I suppose. But when they become part of that system, they start to forget their morals, their values that you and I have and lots of people have. And how can they live with that? And you must come across lots of cases where these individuals, it's not just about the witnesses. It's not just about the people actually involved in the miscarriage of justice the wrongful conviction, it's the peripheral characters, the characters who, how can they look people in the face knowing that what they're doing is condemning an innocent person to even more years after many years in prison? I just can't, Jason, get my head around the kind of people they must be because it's one thing being hoodwinked, right, by evidence that might have made you believe, the jury, for example, that that person is guilty. And, and, and convincing juries is easier, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that maybe they're not guilty. But that's the one thing I've never, in all the years that I was in prison, in all the work that I've done in the 20 years since I've been out of prison, been able to kind of to settle with myself that people are still prepared to make those decisions knowing that the decision they're making is wrong. Yeah, it's an intense moral failing. And I don't understand it myself. We have case after case where prosecutors fight to prevent us from testing the DNA 
or, you know, withhold exculpatory evidence or other things like this, where you just say, you know, we had a case recently, a guy was executed in, I think it was Arkansas named Liddell Lee. And they fought like hell to prevent us from testing the DNA. And it was only after he was executed that the DNA was finally tested and he was proven to be innocent, but he's gone. And I don't understand it. You don't understand it. I don't think well-meaning people can ever understand it. It's incomprehensible, right? But yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the only solution is we have to try to get better people in those positions, right? People, and that's why when I give speeches at law schools and stuff, I, you know, I encourage the kids to become prosecutors, right? It's wonderful you want to become a defense attorney, but the prosecution, if we can get kids who are woke, right, who are, you know, who are driven, who are smart, and who do care about these principles and will continue to, no matter what position they're in, that's going to be a game changer. So it sounds counterintuitive that I would be encouraging people to become prosecutors, but we need more good prosecutors. And they are they're out there, but there are too many that are somewhere between disinterested and um, aggressively opposed to actual justice. And in these cases, they fight us tooth and nail. You know, the Tony Wright case, which I covered on my podcast, you know, even after the DNA was proven, they fought us for eight years. They wouldn't let us test the DNA. We finally got the courts to grant it. He had been in for 22 years by then. The DNA proved that it couldn't have been him. And then they kept him in for two and a half years and retried him again. And the jury deliberated. Well, depends how you look at it. They deliberated for something like 40 minutes. Um, but they, they I think my understanding is they really deliberated for five minutes, but they wanted to stay in there a little longer. So it looked like they had thought about it long, you know, or, or pondered it for a longer period of time. And they came back in and many of them cried as they announced that, that Mr. Wright was not guilty. And several of them, they still made him spend one more night in jail after that. Um, and several of them stayed overnight. And waited for him so they could greet him when he came out and apologize to him for what the city of Philadelphia had done to him. And, you know, so that's, you know, that's a crazy example, but it's not that crazy, you know, and it extends to, you know, every different aspect of our system. You know, on my Instagram, which is at it's Jason Flom, there's another Jason Flom. He's a school teacher in Tallahassee. So okay, I'm talking to I the good looking so, one. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, it's Jason. It's funny because I actually connected with him and he said, oh, you're the reason why people keep sending me their music. <laughs> anyway, but I'm, it's Jason. Well, I mean, yesterday I posted a story that just very contemporaneous just happened, right? Of a guy in, I think his name is Sobolewski or something, Joseph Sobolewski, homeless guy in Pennsylvania also, as it happens, who Went into a convenience store. There was a sign that said Mountain Dew, two for $3. He only wanted one, so he put $2 on the counter and walked out. Well, it turns out that it wasn't a discount that applied to one. One was two twenty nine, And so two twenty nine plus tax is two forty three. So he underpaid by $0.43, cents and the clerk called the cops. And the cops came and arrested him. He's now facing up to seven years in prison for $0.43. Cents. Um, so, you know, our system is so unfair across the board. That, you know, you, we could we could literally do 100 episodes of, of this show and not cover it. And by the way, I want to throw something out there right now. I will accept your ping pong challenge if you will accept my invitation to appear on my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, because I want to interview you. I want to turn those tables. We'll get to the ping pong table and we'll turn the other tables as well. How's that? Deal. Done. 
Excellent. Excellent. Just this just to close off, Jason, you know, what you do is phenomenal. And I'm not just saying that there are not many people who have your passion and, and obsession, not starting from a place of and I wouldn't say injustice, because I don't know your history you talked about addiction, etc. So at least you've got you've had some suffering, even if it was self inflicted. Uh, and I don't know your history. But it's great to talk to someone of influence like yourself, who has a passion has an obsession. But what can people do? I mean, you said when you give lectures to students, you encourage them to become the prosecutors who can make a difference. I'm, I'm convinced that even when they want to do that later on down the line, they get corrupted by the lifestyle or, or the choices, you know, rise the ladder or, or, or remain loyal to what's right and wrong. So what can people do? What would you encourage people to do? I mean, I'm in the UK, but people listen to this podcast all over the world. What would you encourage people to do to get that passion and that obsession that Jason Plum has? Well, I think I learn a ton from the Marshall Project. Right? So I think subscribing to the Marshall Project, which is a free newsletter you can get online, is a great step. That will be you know, a, a phenomenal starting point. And then you know, research these various organizations, right? Go to innocenceproject.org. There's an unbelievable UK-based organization called Justice Defenders. Of course, you know, you spoke with Alexander McLean last night, who's on, uh, who's going to be a featured guest on my podcast, my other podcast, Righteous Convictions. But go to famm.org. Of course, that's a U- US-based thing. Mandatory sentencing is more of a, a US problem, I think, than a global problem, right? But, you know, the first step is to learn about what's going on. This is a global problem. It's not a it, it, it's I think it's most profoundly felt in the United States because we have the craziest uh, system that's ever existed in terms of mass incarceration. But it's not confined to the U.S. Wrongful convictions happen all over the world. You're living proof of it. And so then there are innocence uh, uh, organizations around the world as well. There are different countries that have them, as well as local cities for people listening in the U.S. There are local innocence projects. I encourage people to, to learn about your local innocence project. And I think those are those are good. And of course, listen to Wrongful Conviction. I hope it'll inspire you. And look, I, I appreciate people just tuning in. And then, and then, yeah, and then, you know, shout it from the rooftops. I, I tell everyone, if you know someone, someone you love, someone you care about, a friend, or even something you read about in the newspaper, talk about it everywhere you go, you know, because you never know who might be listening. And you may have the opportunity to, you know, to save somebody's life, to to impact someone who's in the situation that you and your, your two co-defendants were in and that so many uh, others are suffering today and whose voices need to be heard. And my final question, my podcast is obviously called Second Chance. Um, and second chance can mean different things for different people. What does second chance mean to you, Jason? Not necessarily for the the wrongfully convicted that you tried to help. It might be a personal thing that you took a second chance or you, you gave someone a second chance who didn't deserve a second chance, but you knew. What does the, the meaning second chance mean to you? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I was given a second chance for sure. And I it, it informs my work. You know, I did have, uh, as a kid, I smoked pot. I was like, the, I, I envisioned myself as like the Jewish Bob Marley, except they didn't have the musical talent to go with it, right? But I smoked so much weed. And 
I was never arrested. And I knew it was because of the color of my skin and the zip code that I lived in. And, and then as I, you know, developed this, uh, you know, coke habit in my 20s, I was very lucky to be sent to rehab and never sent to prison, uh, which so many others were not given that second chance. And, you know, I ended up turning my life around um, and employing dozens and dozens of people and paying lots of taxes and finding and developing many wonderful artists and, and being able to help a lot of other people. So that's a second chance. But one other second chance story that I learned and maybe, and this is, you know, slightly off the, off the track here, but maybe it'll inspire somebody else. I hope so. When I was running Virgin Records, someone from the accounting department came to see me and said, we've discovered that one of the promotion people that work for, uh, you know, for the company has been lying on their expense reports. We found these receipts from a restaurant that closed a couple of years ago, cash receipt, this and that. Seemed like he had, for, you know, fudged his account to the extent of about $5,000. And they said, you have to fire him. And, you know, there were different people from the company came to see me. And I said, oh, Jesus, this is, this is horrible. The guy's got three kids, blah, blah, blah. He's a very good promotion guy. So I fired him. And then I thought about it for a couple of days. And I said, you know what? This isn't right. I mean... Who am I to judge, right? I had problems with substances. Maybe he's got a particular problem that made him behave in this particular type of way. But he's got a family. He made a mistake. So I called him up and I said, you know what? We're going to give you your job back. You can't do this again. And we're going to ask you to pay back the money that you improperly billed us for to, you know, $100 a month or whatever it was. And he went on to become one of our best people, had a successful career. And, you know, his boss, who ran the promotion department, came to see me and said that in my entire career in the music industry, that's the nicest, best thing I've seen happen. So that's something that I learned that was a second chance that maybe went against the grain. But I hope that, like I said, maybe it'll inspire someone else to you know, look at someone else and not judge them by the worst thing they've ever done, uh, but rather give them that second chance and see if it doesn't end up being a really profound experience as it was. I'm looking, I'm still talking about it and still thinking about it all these years later. And it's a, it's a relatively small thing in the big picture, right? But it had a real impact on a number of people and it's still resonating with me to this day. Um, so yeah, so, so I think it's great that your podcast is called second chance. I think you're the embodiment of, you know, uh, of that spirit, very different than the story I just told, cause you did nothing wrong, but no, I'm excited. Listen, I appreciate you having me on and letting me ramble about these important topics. And, uh, and I'm really looking forward to turning, like I said, turning the tables and having you on my show. I look forward to it too. Jason Flum, thank you very much for sharing your, your journey. And I look forward to coming on your podcast. Thank you for giving me your time. We'll set it up and I'll see you over there in November. So get ready. Best of seven. <laughs> I'll start warming up now. <laughs> I better get practicing my ping pong or table tennis skills. Now the challenge is on. Thank you, Jason. 
You heard me during that interview praise the podcast Jason host because I sincerely believe it's one of the most unfiltered and powerful takes on wrongful conviction cases I've ever heard. And that's saying something. So go check it out. Thanks for listening to this episode with Jason Flume. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, share and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at A Reporter or go to Second Chance by Raphael Rowe on Facebook. You can also find previous episodes of this podcast on all podcast platforms or the Raphael Rowe website. As this is an independent podcast, we rely on your support. So if you would like to sponsor, advertise on this show, please get in touch via email or the Raphael Rowe website. This really does help us keep the podcast moving forward. So thank you. If you think you know someone with something to share on the podcast, please get in touch via social media, email or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. This episode was produced by Daryl Johnston and Sophie Warner and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.